to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Is it on? So John is a, a vicar, as they say. A vic- How would you say it in your language? A king. A, a king. <laughs> a vicar. A vicar. Okay, so um, do you want to say anything to start off? Because John's never taught with somebody else, and I've only done this a couple of times in my life. So this is going to be funny. This is going to be a competition. Yeah. Oh. This is a preach-off. Um, <laughs> and what I'd like to say at the beginning is, although I'm infinitely more attractive and eloquent than Darren, I do not want you to undermine him right from the start. So no booing when he's speaking. Are you, are you going to stand there while I do this? Yeah, can I? Or do you want me to sit? What do you I, want me to I do? think you'd be more comfortable sitting because you might be standing for about five minutes or so. So we're literally going to tag team. Like, I'm going to come back up when you're done? I think so. Well, what were you thinking? I, I don't know. I was just thinking you, we can grab some stools or something and I'll sit here. <laughs> what do you want me to do? I don't care. Whatever. You do what that. you want to do. Okay. Let's see how it goes. Okay, I'm going to sit right here. <clears throat> so, um... Uh, thank you very much for, for, for making me welcome again, uh, Chris and I. I'm also here with Ben. Um, who, we're all um, working in this church in London. And um, I'm very grateful to other people that I know who've come here. There are some people here from um, Bethel. And there are people here from Los Angeles that have been in St. Mary's at one stage. That We have friends coming from a church that we've been involved with in Charlotte. And uh, basically, we have um, um, some great young guys who come from a Vanguard University who are just learning how to start to pray for people. And uh, um, we've been speaking there for, um, well, I've been speaking there mainly um, um, since Tuesday. And it's been a privilege um, trying to uh, help people um, understand a little bit about the Holy Spirit and how they can be involved in the work of the Spirit. So the thing is, I'm, I'm of no consequence to man or beast, really, um, particularly to you. I mean, you have great speakers and great worship leaders and everything here and a fantastic climate. Um, and um, uh, the, the, uh, I think the only point of me at all, um, Ryu, is just that, uh, for the last 30 years, um, I have been um, talking about the power of the Spirit and praying for people and seeing God do the sorts of things that um, are in the New Testament. And that, that is a, that's a huge privilege. I'm very grateful to God for that. And unlike Darren, it's, it's all because I was taught when I first became a Christian that God did these things. And I, I, I was an atheist, and, and when I became a Christian, I was incredibly hungry. I had a huge desire to read the Bible. Uh, I was like a pregnant woman with a food fad. I just had to have the Bible, read it all the time. Loved praying, couldn't stop praying. One of those people that would get carried away in prayer and miss their bus stop, you know. And uh, I, was, I was in love with Jesus. And, uh, in fact, my, my, my brother said when I, when I became a Christian, I substituted worshipping Elvis for worshipping Jesus. And there's probably a lot in that. Um, and basically, um, I had a, a, a compulsive passion for Jesus and all the things of God, you know. And I was taught by Pentecostals, and they taught me that, that God wanted to do today all the things that he did in the New Testament. And I had no other frame of reference. I'd, I'd been, my former experience, if I had any, was just nominal Church of England, like your Episcopal Church, where literally nothing happened except people died, either of boredom or literally. Um, and so really, and they were old enough to die, you know. So, so it, was, it, was, it was shockingly bad. So, um, 
um, I believed that. And so within a year, I had seen people um, come to faith. I'd seen demons cast out of people. I'd seen the sick healed. And it, it, was, it was very exciting. Of course, I didn't know one end of what I was doing. I used to go around saying, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. Um, because I, you know, I just, and, and then Christian friends would say, life, life, it's life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I, and I knew that Jesus also said he was the light. And I said, well, does it matter? Of course, it, of course, it does matter, but, you know, at the time, it was like, oh, it's a detail, it's a detail, whatever. They're getting converted. Like, can't you be happy? And, and the answer was they were happy. They were happy. So, anyway, um, so, so I, I, when, I, when I speak to churches, I, I'm only, the only relevance of me is just to be an encouragement to people to believe that God still does these things. Now, I'm, I'm aware that many people here believe that. Some people probably don't believe that at all, or they'd like to believe that, but they don't see it, they haven't seen it, much as Darren said. And uh, I, I have no axe to grind. I'm not here to, um, to hurt anybody, confuse anybody, or, or um, have a, a controversy with anybody. Uh, I'm, I can tell you my experience on how I understand the Bible, which is what Darren will be doing as well. Um, but I'm, I want to encourage us to see that these sorts of things are possible. And my, my desire is to see many, many people in, involved in the things of God, happily involved. You know. And the thing is, you could find people who are far more gifted than me, actually, in these things as well. I, I see it as an irony that God uses me to do this kind of thing, because I could think of a lot of people who do it better. Um, but I'm, uh, maybe that's good, because I'm not, I'm not the perfect do you know what I mean? I'm not the finished article. I've seen God heal people. I've prayed for lots of people who have not been healed. Uh, last week in Vanguard, we saw an incredible thing with a young girl who, um, who grew up um, at home with alcoholic parents. And the mother was also into uh, demonic things. And so she got completely used to sleeping in a, in a bedroom with poltergeist activity of the kind you see in horror films. And the father got sick of this in the end. Nominal Christian tried to cast it out. It went into the roof and then came back down to the ceiling. So it was just knocked on the ceiling forever. I mean, you know, an awful way to grow up. She's a very gracious girl. I tried to respect her parents and honor her parents. And basically, she was terrified of the Holy Spirit because her only experiences of the supernatural were frightening. So it's not surprising, is it? So basically, she very courageously renounced the things that she'd been involved in because of her mother, because she had been involved in stuff when she was younger, before she became a Christian. And basically, that was quite difficult, but she did it. We prayed for her, and it was one of those fantastic things where instantaneously she's freed. She has a great sense of relief of feeling clean, and um, it speaks in tongues. It's filled with great joy, and basically said, uh, gave public witness to this a couple of days ago, just to say that, you know, for the first time, she could walk around without having to look over her shoulder, without having to be afraid. It's hard to imagine living life like that, isn't it? But that was her life, and now she's free, and that's a fantastic thing. But then at the same time, we pray for somebody who has had demonic dreams for ages and ages, feels suicidal, and we couldn't deal with it. So it's not like every single person we pray for gets healed. And I'm, I'm fairly um, hardened against people who'd like to give a formula and an explanation for why that is. No one knows why that is. You know, some people are healed, some people aren't healed, because some people are healed. We pray for them. And I, I don't just mean it physically healed. I mean emotionally healed. I mean healed in every way. And... Um, Basically, I, I'm into it because I see it happening, and I've seen it happening for 30 years, 30 years of this kind of thing. And also, my privilege, I mean, it's a strange privilege, because my culture is sort of stupidly pagan, increasingly stupidly pagan, and you really don't want to go the same way as us, and you actually are, but you could do with stopping that. So try and have a revival or something. You're quite good at that. Um, basically, um, the thing is, uh, therefore... Our church is often made up of people that believe zero. 
And so that's great because you can just teach them anything, you know. <laughs> Jesus wants you to give me your clothes, your house, your money. You know, it's brilliant. No, no, I'm only joking. Sorry. Let's leave that. I know we've done that before. Um, that wouldn't work with the English, actually. You know, much tighter than you. And so basically, um, it, it's like, um, uh, you know, this weekend, for example, for the first time in years, I'm actually missing our, we do a course for non-Christians. We've done, we do it three times a year, all the time. I, pro, I don't know, 15 years worth I've done of these. But I've got a brilliant uh, young colleague who now leads it, and I just help him. Because my role is increasingly decreasing, I find. As I get older, I decrease, and I try and see other people do the thing. Um, and basically, um, they're doing the weekend now, right while we're here. And it's, it's a bit of a wrench not to be there, actually. But the, the, the lovely pagans all over the place who know nothing. And at some stage, some, some Ed will say, should we just take the chairs away? What do you mean? Well, you've been listening to me talk, but let's take the chairs away. Would you like to stand and we'll just ask the Spirit to come? What do you mean? It'll be fine. You'll be fine. We'll have a, we'll have a little restroom break. Come back in five minutes. So, that, so by the time they come back, all the chairs have gone and they're standing there. Well, would you, why didn't you just open your hands? Just open your hands. Like, what do you mean? Just open your hands like that. Okay. Close your eyes. That's it. Brilliant. Just stay there for a while. And why didn't you speak to God? I don't believe in God. Doesn't matter. Have a chat. Um, and see how it goes. And, th- and, then, and then we'll pray that God will send his spirit to you. We'll add our prayers to yours. And members of the team, they'll just come around. They'll put a hand on your shoulder and pray. And, and then it all happens. Like uh, in the way that we've described. And it's fantastic. And they, they know nothing. It's absolutely amazing. And so that's my privilege. To, that's the context I come from. Anyway, so we're going to whip along now. And I'm going to do a bit of teaching. Then Darren's going to do a bit of teaching. And we'll probably finish about midnight just with the teaching. Um, so... This session is about the experience of the Holy Spirit and how the first disciples experienced the Holy Spirit. And I'm guessing this is going to be very familiar to you, so I'm going to use my gift of speaking very quickly. So these verses are going to come up on the screens over here, just to remind you. But basically, um, we're told that after Jesus was resurrected, um, he, he instructed his disciples to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit had come upon them in Acts 1, verses 3 to 4. I'm not going to read all these verses because it will take too long. And then they're filled <clears throat> with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish festival commemorating the gift of the law and the first fruit of the harvest. And so lots of Jews from around the ancient Near East are in Jerusalem to celebrate this important sort of double festival. And really it's a little bit like a, a spiritual audio-visual presentation of the old-fashioned variety. Um, in uh, verses 2, 1 to 4, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. And so basically they, um, they hear something, the blowing of a violent wind, they see something, tongues of fire what would that have looked like, I don't know Um, and they feel something, Luke's language is that they're drenched they're drenched with something like you know, a a huge deluge of water tropical rainstorm, they're drenched and also they do something, they speak in tongues and um, just moving on from there what what I want to do is show you some of these familiar passages and then between us we're going to talk about what comes out of them so next one is in Acts chapter 9 and this is the conversion of Saul Um, just Saul chapter uh, (laughs) 1 Acts chapter 1 shows you where Saul was at Um, uh, chapter chapter 9 verse 1 meanwhile Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord So, so tragically Saul has reached the logical conclusion of religion Bear in mind that um, we are not 
religious at all, that religion, as Karl Barth, the theologian, said, is the height of our rebellion against God. So religion, bad. Faith and relationship, good. So basically, Christianity is a relationship with the living God. You know, you don't, you know, you don't become a Christian. You, do, you don't you know, you know, go to McDonald's and become a hamburger in the same way you don't you know, go to church and become a Christian. Right? It's, it's not a religion where you just tick the box. You, you, you need to be one in heart, in, heart, in relationship. Thanks. And um, <clears throat> we don't do that where I come from. It's, it's seen as rude interruption. Um, you can do it for me. That's fine. Yeah, you can do it for Darren, actually. That, that's fine, because he needs the encouragement and the help. Uh, no, it's true. Um, so basically, that, that's where he is. So the religion which is about the truth is always going to lead to violence. Because the truth leads to violence. You know, I'm right and you're wrong. The truth, instinct, leads to violence. And in Christianity, mercy triumphs over judgment, doesn't it? Which is very difficult for everybody that really burns with the knowledge of the truth. But the fact is, mercy triumphs over judgment. So Jesus, you know, was highly confrontational, stood for the truth, but ultimately preferred mercy to correct and right judgment. So basically, Saul, however, knows nothing about mercy, and therefore, being a man of the truth, he's reached the conclusion that these people are heretics, and therefore, they are going to pollute the people of God and need to die. And we see that in other parts of the world, don't we? So basically, Acts chapter 9, verse 1, but look at verse 20. Um, Immediately, Paul, Saul, began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he's the Son of God. And what happens in between is the famous story of the road to Damascus experience, where Saul is setting off with authority from the high priest to make sure that all the Christians he can get hold of are imprisoned. And on on his way, there's a blinding light, he falls from his horse, and a voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul rather uh, ineptly says... Who are you? And uh, the Lord says, I'm, uh, you know, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. You know, you're persecuting me by persecuting my body, my people. And basically then um, a disciple named Ananias seriously draws a short straw. Um, so he's praying and basically um, God says to him, I'd like you to go and find this guy Saul. Um, he's on Straight Street. You know, go and find him and, you know, uh, I'd like you to lay hands on him. He's, by the way, he's blind. Um, you, mean, you mean Saul, Saul the Christian killer? Yeah, that one. Just go and find him. It'll be fine. Just go and find him. No. And, and, and Ananias goes, Ananias goes, what, what the one who's come with authority from the chief priest to kill alone? I don't want to do that. And basically, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's a serious deal, isn't it? I, mean, I wouldn't be doing that, would you? I definitely put that in the category of ones that wasn't from God. And basically, um, it's just a kind of daydream, whatever. Just go and watch the television for a bit, it'll go away. That sort of thing. So, so, um, so but, but he wisely loses the fight. And I would say when God speaks to us, we often have a bit of a wrestle. It's quite normal, you know. I mean, I have given what, what you know, charismatics describe as words of knowledge, you know, words from God. And it's usually quite difficult. I mean, I was helped by the fact that I once had a word of knowledge for somebody going on a cycling holiday to France with genital problems. And once you've actually given that word and not died, and, uh, you know, you lose your sense of shame, really. That does help, because it's never going to get worse than that, I don't think. Um, and, and it, but there was somebody there with that condition. I mean, everything needs to be healed, right? So, um, you know, that actually really did happen. Um, But it's still quite difficult to give these things. You know, when I was in Vanguard, I felt God say to me, you need to tell the staff team, not the students, tell the staff team that that there are several of them who have not managed to grieve properly. Because these are people that teach thousands of people, and they're all Christians, and that's, you know, we're all Christians and all that kind of thing. So, um, 
couple of staff members came to find me to say that they had never been able to grieve properly and that that had closed their hearts off. It was a common problem with the result that they died inside and they weren't able to then behave normally at all because it had been so long. Such a traumatic thing. But, but, you know, it's quite a thing to say that, isn't it? You know, just focus on the students, God. That's what I'm here for. So, um, anyway, um, so basically... Ananias draws the short straw, but he goes in obedience, lays hands on Saul, and he regains his sight, and ultimately Saul becomes a Christian. And then final bit of Bible. Darren doesn't really refer to the Bible, so I'm just helping him with that. So this is Acts chapter 10, um, verses 44 to 47, and this is the culmination of probably the most boring sermon in the Bible. This is Peter droning on and on and on to Cornelius, probably because he doesn't want to be there, I'm thinking. I don't want to read this. I never read it, really. I just skip over it if I have to read it. But basically, no, it's very dull. The thing is, it's, it's all about, he's praying one day, a sheet comes down from heaven with unclean foods, and he, he senses a voice saying, get up, kill and eat. And he says, no, because we don't touch unclean foods. But basically, it's a kind of prophetic preparation for the fact that some unclean Gentiles are going to turn up at his house. Now, Jews do not allow Gentiles to enter their homes, and neither do they enter the homes of Gentiles. But Peter, courageously, having had a struggle with the Lord, just like Ananias, decides he's going to lose and therefore win, and heads off with these people to preach the gospel to Cornelius and some other God-fearers, preaches the gospel and goes on and on. I think he just thinks he's got to cover every conceivable base. Anyway, the Holy Spirit gets excessively bored with this in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking, and that's what I think the emphasis is, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. And the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, um, who had come with Peter, were astounded that the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. <laughs> For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God or extolling God. Then Peter said, well, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Because they've received the Holy Spirit just as us. He's probably thinking, look, I've only got to point three. I've got eight other points. Anyway, the Holy Spirit didn't want to hear them, so they got baptized. And, and again, there's another powerful demonstration of what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. So I've just shown you three um, quite dramatic encounters there between the first disciples and the Spirit. Thank you, John. Mm. Okay, now I see why you want to be sit. Here you go, buddy. Great, great work. Okay, so um, from there... We can, we can, we're going to pull out a couple of points. One, the power of the Spirit is given so we can do something. The power of the Holy Spirit is given so that we can do something. Jesus doesn't do anything until he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And we read in, in the Gospels that Jesus doesn't begin his ministry until, it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, as Jesus is baptized, just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being t- torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from he- heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. We read that Jesus is baptized. The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And he is affirmed with the divine blessing of his identity. And from there, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Before he can do absolutely anything, anything, he enters into his professional ministry. And what is his ministry marked by? Well, it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. I'm just going to go through a couple of things to prove my point. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus comes um, into Galilee proclaiming the good news. Um, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time being a a, a significant Kairos moment where heaven is breaking in on earth. It's a specific time that the kingdom, the kingdom is defined by God's sovereign rule and reign. Or you could say it's the way life would look like on earth if God was in charge. 
So I want you to think about that for a second. It's what life would look like, your life. It's what your life would look like if God was in charge. It would be a life marked by healing, by wholeness, by justice, by peace, by righteousness, by having new hearts. You'd be, it would be marked by life filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, I don't have time to go through that, but I, that's, that's a significant point that the kingdom that he's talking about is the life God intended us to live in the first place. Um, and so he goes on preaching this, this gospel, this good news, and then he begins to demonstrate this reality with amazing power. He goes, he goes into a synagogue, cast out demons. Very, this is all in chapter 1 of Mark. He goes on to heal many people. In fact, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Um, I don't know why he would ever want to do that, for those of you that are married. But anyways, um, oh, come on. Really? This is a come on. Really? This guy? Okay. I love my mother-in-law. <laughs> yeah, right. She's not going to listen to this anyway. So, um... He casts out demons. They say he has authority. But in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, this is what Jesus' mission is. He reveals to us what he's come to do and why the Spirit has empowered him. In verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As you read in the New Testament, you see Jesus does this. As, you, as he lives his life, blind people see. Sick people are healed. The demon, the, those that are literally um, need liberation are given freedom from spiritual oppression. Everywhere he goes, the kingdom of God is manifested with Jesus as the manifested presence of the divine. And everywhere he goes, he's casting out demons. He's proclaiming the good news. He, the sick people are being healed. But it's fascinating to the poor people, those that you would least likely expect to be around Jesus, those that should never be around Jesus, the broken, the poor, the outcast, they're invited into his inner circle. He's a living testimony to a life of the spirit, this kingdom reality that God is doing something and he's up to something. And that's the same today as 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 John was saying, whatever your name is, as John was saying, we, we've seen this this week. And some of you have had testimonies today of someone being healed in a jacuzzi like this stuff happens. This stuff happens. I mean, we've seen miraculous things on, on, on a regular basis. Um, and, and it's because the spirit of God empowers us to do something. He empowers us to do something. So Jesus goes on. Let me just finish my thought here before you take, take this away. Um, do you realize that if you read the Gospels in Mark, that Jesus selects the absolute worst kinds of people? He selects tax collectors. He selects those that are conspiring with Rome. He's selecting Al-Qaeda terrorists. Literally. That would be the context for the first century. He's selecting um, these zealots, those that are stockpiling weapons in synagogues to attack those that are conspiring with those that are conspiring with Rome. And he says, you guys are going to be my disciples. He's, he's taking fishermen. We're talking about teenagers. And he's saying, you guys not only can know what I know, you not only can do what I do, but you can be like me. So Jesus takes disciples. And in Mark chapter 3, it says in verse 14, he appointed 12 that they might um, be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to, uh, to drive out demons. And this is Mark's way of saying to do what Jesus did. To preach the good news and to do what Jesus did. Heal the sick, cast out demons. 
So this, that happens in Mark chapter 3. And by Mark chapter 6, they're already doing this. He sends them out. They go out proclaiming the good news. They heal sick people and they cast out demons. And so we see for those that follow Jesus, it is completely ordinary to do this type of stuff. It should be ordinary for people to walk into our churches and walk out healed if they're hurting. Are you with me? The spirit comes upon us to do the stuff that Jesus invites us into, to empower us to do things. So I, you could say, um, if you followed, not to use more scripture, I just love using scripture because it backs everything we're trying to teach. I don't want to teach out, outside of scripture. All I'm trying to say is I want to, I want to live a life like what's written in this New Testament and the Old Testament. I want to see a life flowing out with Scripture. I want to see passion for the truth that we find in Scriptures. And we see that Jesus takes ordinary nobodies, everyday ordinary people, and He says, you can be like me. And they go on and be like Him. So Jesus ascends into heaven. They're filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. In the very next chapter in Acts chapter 3, they're walking into temple to pray which is what you did as a Jewish person in, that, in the first century. And a beggar is begging at the gate of beautiful. He says, Can, do you have any money? And they say, no, but what we have, we give freely. What did they have? Everything that Jesus had to give them. And so they said, what we have, we give free, freely. They healed the guy. He'd been crippled for 40 years. They preached the gospel. They're, they're, brought, they're brought into the Sanhedrin, which would be like the, the Jewish courts, the, high, the PhDs of the Jewish religion, the, the end all. And they say, the, these guys are ordinary, uneducated men, but they had been with Jesus. Acts chapter 4. And so we see that the reason we're all gathered in this room for those that have confessed faith is because ordinary, uneducated men like myself have been filled with the Holy Spirit and been obedient to see a mission of God move forward to do something. The Spirit of God comes on us to do something. Yes, and, and we'll whip through these next things. I've got two quick things and then Darren will conclude. Basically, the power of the Spirit is given so that we can love someone. Now, this is slightly reading between the lines, but I'm sure you would agree that on the day of Pentecost, when the onlookers thought that the disciples were drunk, it, it presumably wasn't because they were speaking in a different language. I mean, if I started speaking French, I don't think you conclude that I was drunk. You could conclude that I spoke French. So I, I reckon there must have been something about them which made it look like they were drunken people. So they are staggering around. Maybe they're laughing. Maybe they're filled with joy. And they are speaking in other languages, probably almost in a way that's totally astonishing and beyond their control is how I see it. But commonly when the Spirit comes upon people in the book of Acts, we read that the Spirit falls upon them and, and they um, praise God. They praise God. They extol God. They praise God. And I don't think that's like a obedient response. Oh, God's done something. Better praise him. I think this is, a, uh, this is an uncontainable, uh, explosive um, statement of praise. Like, like um, the girl I talked about who was freed from the demonic thing. Um, when I saw her the next day and when she spoke to everybody, all her contemporaries, about what had happened, the joy on her face is undeniable. 
You couldn't argue with the sense of this person has been filled with an incredible experience of being loved or loving God. And so it is reading between the lines slightly because the Holy Spirit is not a spooky atmosphere. He's not a feeling. He's not that woo you get when you like a Christian worship song, which, by the way, is only anointed because it's quite a good combination of words and music. You know, there's no such thing as actually an anointed song. It's just one that's quite well written. doesn't always happen. Sometimes it does. But basically, you know, the Holy Spirit is a person. But you respond to his presence. You respond to his presence. And you can notice the response. But internally, God creates a love for himself. And the love for God and love of God. Um, And so basically, the Spirit is given. The power of the Spirit is given so we can love someone. And often when people experience the power of the Spirit for the first time, it's quite ecstatic. And um, humbling. Because here's a demonstration that God really is God. And I see that especially with my friends who didn't believe in God at all and are now on the floor. Um, so basically, um, Paul talks about the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts. And probably the most extreme instance I ever saw of that was this, this girl who came to do this course I mentioned, which is for non-Christians. She, uh, we greet people on the door and she came for six weeks and spoke to nobody. So she slid her way around the wall, sat in her group where she spoke to nobody and basically refused to answer any questions, but she came every week. And we have a weekend away where we talk about the spirit. She comes to the weekend, she gets prayed for and immediately curls up into a ball by a radiator and stays there. And there's a doctor there and he says, I'm a little bit concerned about this. It looks a little bit like a catatonic state, whatever that is. And um, basically, I am concerned. Anyway, we don't know what to do with her. She won't talk to anybody. She comes home to the evening service at the end of the weekend. And this guy does what I thought was an extraordinarily dull kind of version of the communion thing, which went on forever, and talks about the love of God and on and on about the love of God. Anyway, for some reason, which, you know, is almost unforgivable, that got through to her. And basically, um, she comes forward, takes bread and wine, and is then on her knees in the church with an extraordinarily beautiful smile on her face. Everybody else has gone home, and I'm the last person there, and there's her. And basically, it's the first time I heard her speak, and she said, um, I would like to tell people about this. So it so happened that we had, a, we had some midweek meetings going on at the time. And um, so the first time that she really spoke was in front of 500 people. And she just told her story, which was she'd been sexually assaulted by her father. She's cutting herself. She was contemplating becoming a prostitute because she hated herself so much. And um, she was um, training to be a doctor. And basically, the Holy Spirit filled her with a great sense of being loved by God, despite all of that. And normally speaking, that's the kind of background and situation which is going to take a long, long time to be healed. Now, I still know this woman, so this is like, I don't know, 15 years later. And she was, I would say, immediately healed of all of it in one moment. And people, and that's very, that is very unusual, but it did happen. It did happen. And basically, then immediately, all, all the people in the college are saying, well, have you fallen in love? Who have you fallen in love with? Who did you meet? Because the, the love of God was such power in her life. So that is extreme. But the power of the Spirit is given so that we can love someone. And, um, you know... As I mentioned, when the Spirit's poured out for the first time on the Gentiles, they start praising God. Now, spontaneous praise, that's the language of joy and delight. And praise of God or delight in God should naturally touch our whole personalities, including our emotions. Now, the danger for many people in their relationship with God is not delirious emotionalism, is it? You know. Now, I know that there is a, there's, there's a, a stream here, which is over the top. I mean, the English just can't manage to go, I am over the top, by the way. 
as English people go, I am a drama queen. So this is the height of, of drama for the English, you know. So, so in England, I'm regarded as being strange for that reason. Um, but but, um, but it's, I mentioned when I was at Vanguard, you know, when I first started coming to America, particularly to the, to the south, if somebody said, you know, how are you? And I said, yeah, I'm fine, which would be normal for me, that I'm fine. That was like total panic. It's like, what, you're depressed, you're suicidal. That's what you're really saying, isn't it? Because they don't get that kind of low energy. I'm fine. The English will do that all the time. Hi, how are you? So basically, so I've learned that if somebody says, how are you doing? I go, I'm doing really well. And everybody's okay, you know. So there is such a thing as manipulation of emotions, emotionalism, you know, having just ridiculous things. I read of a legal case, this is a real case from New York, where somebody was suing somebody else for an, in, an accident that had happened in church. And what had happened is that they'd been injured by someone who was trotting in the spirit at the time. <laughs> I wish I'd seen that anyway. There you go. If a comedy produces laughter, the film is regarded as successful. If a tragedy brings tears to the audience, the production is regarded as touching. If a soccer match, real sport, um, thrills spectators, the game is viewed as exciting. Look, it's not like, you know, what is it? Physical chess. It's not like that. Anyway, um, but if a, congregation, <laughs> if a congregation is moved <laughs> by the glory of God in worship, it's accused of emotionalism getting carried away. I did say this um, a couple of days ago, but I think it bears repetition. Can you honestly see Jesus issuing a beatitude like, blessed are the cautious? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not very likely, is it? Blessed are the cautious. Don't get carried away. By the way, you know what? I'm sending you out like, you know, <clears throat> like, um, like sheep amongst wolves. Um, you know, you've got huge power. Don't take any money, by the way. Just one set of clothing. The truth is, quite a few of you will die, but be cautious. See what I mean? It, isn't it a bit silly? I mean, isn't, wouldn't it be more likely that Jesus would issue a beatitude like, be wild and very courageous, if he was going to issue something like that? You know, go over the top a bit. That would be quite good for you. Why don't you go over the top? I'm just saying, but I am aware that there's the other extreme where people just do stupid things because their emotions are manipulated, blah, blah, blah. So... <clears throat> Um, the Spirit is given so that we can love God and enjoy Him forever. And so if you're somebody who's, who's never, who does, whose feelings are unmoved all the time, then this is for you. There's the possibility of, a, of a, a more emotional connection with God, your Father. And there'll be reasons why that's the way it is. Partly because of teaching or expectation, but it will also be because of, of this problem of having a closed heart, which we haven't chosen. We don't choose to close our heart most of the time. But basically, it's a response to pain. So if you can't process pain, if you can't, for example, see God as being nice and liking you, if you can't see God as being on your side, not the cause of the problem, but actually the solution, if you can't see God being like that, what are you going to do with it? There's nowhere to go, is there? So what you do is you push it way down. Push it way down. And unfortunately, a lot of people do that, and then they can't feel anything for other people or for God because the mechanism's closed down. That's well, very sad, and it leads to all kinds of other things. Well, it's not your fault, it's just it's, it's our reaction if we don't know how to deal with God, really. The most formative time in my Christian life was after my mother was diagnosed with cancer. She was my best friend as well as my mother. And for a year, God was my grieving partner. 
And because of going through that experience with God, uh, I, I knew that nothing would ever be too much because that was the worst thing that could possibly happen. And, you know, God showed me she would die several times through various different people. Imagine this as a word. I see your mother being dead on a slab. Somebody came to give me that word on the day when I was praying and fasting about whether my mother would live or die. Imagine that as a word from God. I still know that woman. She's a very good friend. But, you know, <clears throat> what I'm saying, I never prayed for her to be healed, actually. I kind of knew she would die. But basically, and I've seen people who, who were dying healed. Um, but anyway, so, so that was formative for me because I drew near to God. And I went through it with God. And what I find, unfortunately, is that Christians will then will blame God for what's happened. And they don't go through it with him. And that then closes the heart down. So, thirdly, the power of the Spirit is given so that we can live somewhere. So that we can live somewhere. We're coming to an end. If, if you receive the Holy Spirit, you're ushered into a dimension of life that is his. The Holy Spirit is the person in whose dimension of life we experience God. Um, and we're not limited anymore to our concept of what real life is. You know, I get up in the morning, I put on my socks. You know, am I going to eat Weetabix or Cheerios or whatever you guys eat? You know, French toast, syrup, whatever. Bacon, it's not really bacon. Anyway, um... <clears throat> So it's not like, you know, when you're a Christian, all normal manifestations of life are irrelevant and you have to pray about which socks to wear every day because Jesus has got a particular view about whether you wear the purple ones or the orange ones. But we're liberated in the West from the, the effects of our education, which is secular, materialistic. There's a set of blinkers, you know, the, the general ethos is seeing is believing. Demonstrate it in a test tube and I'll believe you, otherwise it's not real. And that's the long-term legacy of people not believing in God and passing this on through, you know, generations and generations of people. So evidence, it, it, you know, signs of, you know, living somewhere else in, in um, <clears throat> Acts 2 are, for example, prophetic and visionary awareness, um, where um, in chapter 2, verse 17, Peter explaining what's going on says, In the last days, it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. So these are signs of being in touch with the wisdom and direction of God, whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts. Um, another example in the day of Pentecost, and I, I know this is controversial for some, is speaking in tongues. It's so strange that the charismatic thing seems to be reduced to a big fight about the horrors of speaking in tongues. And again, where I come from, it's just not an issue, you see, because nobody knows what speaking in tongues is. They've never heard of it. They have absolutely no idea. So after they've all stood up there and been prayed for, and some of them are on the floor and some of them have run out screaming, those that are still there, I'll just say, hey, do you want to have a go at speaking in tongues? And they go... What? But we do it, and they do. It's easy. And we don't say, you know, you're not a Christian unless you've done it, and we don't put a lot of pressure on them to do it, but, but they often do do it. And then it's normal. So they're normed into this kind of thing. So I don't share the sort of hang-up about tongues, so forgive me for that. But it can be interesting to hear from somebody who doesn't see it as an issue. So what happens here is the Spirit of God comes upon um, these people and their experience of speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost is actual languages. And sometimes that does happen. I remember, you know, droning away, praying for somebody in tongues, and they said to me, do you speak Arabic? 
And I said, no. And he said, well, you've just been talking about Jesus in Arabic, which is news to me because I just thought I was dribbling on in my own way. I didn't notice anything different happened. There was no divine cloud. Angels weren't whispering in my ear. I was just prattling on. And they heard what I was saying in Arabic. And I've had that experience as well in another language. I, I, for the life of me, can't remember what it was, though. But I've heard that kind of thing from time to time. Um, <clears throat> so generally, though, speaking in tongues is not that. It's a private language of prayer and worship that transcends the limitations of the language barrier. So basically, you know when you're very, very happy, you've got no words. <laughs> I'm so happy. Or when you're in a lot of pain, <laughs> no words, right? But you still need to make some kind of sound. So basically, speaking in tongues is sighs and groans which are too deep for words, as Paul says in Romans. And we do need to be able to articulate that kind of thing, especially when we pray. Because remember, praying is not really something you do. Praying is something you do in cooperation with the Spirit of God. In fact, Paul says, you know, you do not know how to pray. We do not know, know how to pray, but in our weakness, the Spirit is given to help us. Right, So you, you need the Spirit to help you. So you're praying with and in the Spirit. Really, what you're supposed to be doing when you pray is just be invited into a conversation that's already going on between the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's not like, you know, prayer, isn't, prayer is your responsibility. You flip and pray. You know, think about those unsaved people. Pray for them. I, I, I felt at one stage I needed to pray, against drug, drug, to pray for drug busts. In my, I have no interest in drugs. I've never taken drugs, never seen drugs, right? And so basically it was random as far as I was concerned. So I started praying that the police would find drugs and blah, blah, blah. It wasn't even interesting to me. But I kept doing it for a while. And then I noticed in the, in the, in the, in the press and the media, lots of drug busts. That was all me. Amazing. <laughs> so how is speaking in tongues received? Well, you know, God doesn't force his gifts, his gifts, it's a gift on anyone, right? You've got to be saved. I mean, if only God would do that, but he doesn't, does he? You know, he offers salvation, but he doesn't make people be saved. So basically, he doesn't force any gifts on anyone. But it's an open opportunity, I believe. And notice the connection between the coming of the Spirit on people in the New Testament and speaking in tongues. Seems to be quite a common connection. But again, I would not make it into a law, because I don't see the New Testament as a law book. I'm sorry if you do, but that would be to reincorporate the very thing we tried to get away from when Jesus came in the first place. He's the law shatterer. He, he's the one who, by grace, totally shatters the category of the law. If you want the law, we're all dead. That's what the law says. Jesus prefers mercy to judgment, and he shatters legal categories. So don't turn the New Testament into a law book, because that would be to reinvent the problem. So basically, God doesn't force gifts on people. He encourages us to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. What does eagerly desire mean? Hands up if you haven't eaten yet this evening. Anybody here that's not eaten this evening? Good. Okay, eagerly desire. I haven't eaten either. Eagerly desiring means, is, does it not, that when we get home, when we get into the, near to the smell of food, we, we start dribbling. You know, and, it, and if, you know, you're just thinking, I want to eat the food, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the food, that's the way it is, isn't it? And you begin to smell the food, <laughs> and things start to happen because you want the food, basically. Now, if somebody gets in the way of you in the food, that's a problem, isn't it? You know, and you're just subtly moving them out of the way because you eagerly desire the food. So Paul says, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. And once again, that seems to me to be a million miles away from, could you be a bit cautious about the gifts of the Spirit? So I was taught to pray for all the gifts of the Spirit when I became a Christian. So I did. I didn't know any better. And I think I have been used in all the gifts of the Spirit. I don't even think that's unusual. So I would say, if, you, if you've got a bit of a caution button, it would be good to have that surgically removed. 
And then, you know, it, it, yeah, anyway, um, that'll do. I was taught that, um, you know, the gifts weren't for today. And so when I, I, I cautiously entered into this journey, I was then taught that, well, you only get one gift. So I was very particular on how I would pray for that one gift. It's better be, it better be a good one. Quiet down, okay? Um, and, you know, my journey with experiencing the Holy Spirit, how, how do we experience the Holy Spirit then? If we, we, we believe this is for today, if we believe that Jesus invites us into this, that he, he, he gives us his spirit to do something, to love um, someone, to live somewhere, as these are all John's notes, how do we experience the Holy Spirit? And my journey was, oh God, would you just give me gifts, give me gifts, give me gifts. Lord, I had no context. No group of people coming around me to pray for me. And and two years of praying. How many have been like that? Lord, would you just open up, you know, gifts and let me experience you, God. I mean, are there some of you just that are willing to just say, yeah, man, I just really want to experience God so bad tonight. That you just come in with this expectation. And then not only do you come in with this expectation, but if it doesn't happen, you think to yourself, well, I'm secondhand Christian. I'm not good enough. Well, that was my most of my journey as I, I started out. But then I read this uh, scripture, Luke chapter 11. Jesus is teaching us how to pray. He teaches us the Lord, Lord's Prayer in chapter 11 and talks about us going over to his fr- a friend's house in the middle of the night asking for bread. And he says, um, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. He's comparing, Jesus is using a parable to compare God to a friend. Um, and even a friend that's not willing to open up his door because of friendship, but because of your persistent requests. But then in, in chapter uh, in verse nine of chapter 11, he says this. So I say to you in teaching us how to pray, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks the door will be open. For many of us, that's good news tonight, right? It says that six, six willing, God is willing. You, if you ask, it will be given. Seek and you will find knock and the doors will be open. But he, he continues on and this is where it gets really interesting. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Spirit is given to those who ask, who continue to ask and seek and knock. We have nothing to be afraid of. For my brothers and sisters here that have walked in a caution in a conservative fear of what God might do, we have nothing to be afraid of. He compares God to a good human father. So take the best human relationship you've ever had in your entire life, multiply that by infinity, and apply that to God as you go to Him with your requests. Is that good news? Jesus does not say, 
God gives the Holy Spirit to the holy, to the righteous, to the pure, or the adequate. Inadequacy isn't a problem. For those of you that struggle like myself and say, I'm not good enough, I'm a secondhand Christian, I'll never be used. Jesus doesn't say those that will receive the Spirit have to be adequate. It's not about you. It's about the Holy Spirit that He wants to give you. Amen. Paul says in Ephesians 5 to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is something that we get to practice tonight. To build our faith up. That some of us are coming here with such pain and baggage that it needs to be left at the, the altar tonight. That we can walk out of here freed and released and liberated from the, maybe the, the religious spirits we've been carrying around. Some of us are going to experience the Holy Spirit for the first time. I'm certain. Some of us will be healed. And as the church, this is what it means. We can experience the Holy Spirit first of, first of all by being open. I've prayed for so many people, and I remember the first time, or I went to a new wine with John. John invited me out to the UK to pray for, um, or to, to lead this time. I don't know why, but it was an amazing experience for me, except the first person I prayed for, I go up to pray, I start praying, and he, and he literally, as he's, his eyes are closed, he's, he's like, I'm not experiencing anything. Nope. Nope. Okay, let me, let me try harder. So I'm praying in tongues louder. Um, more Lord yelling at them with a British accent at this point. And, um, and literally, uh, he literally says, well, that, that wasn't very good. And I was a speaker at this venue. So I'm like, well, go find someone else. And literally he did. And it was the worst. It was just a pew for me, but I'd like to blame it on his lack of openness. But I think what we need more than anything is number one, openness to God. God, I'm here. Whatever you have for me. Number two, in my experience, and this is just what I'm sharing, we all carry previous experiences with God. Some of us have had radical encounters with God, and we show up to things like this going, I want what I once had. But God's like manna, right, in these experiences. He wants to give you daily bread. And maybe tonight it's letting go of that past experience and just saying, God, I'll come as you are, as the living God. For others, we have no experience. And that is frightening for you. And so my invitation for you is to be open and to let down those theological barriers. Let down those walls of caution. And just allow, just Holy Spirit, would you fill me however you want to fill me today? He's a gentleman. The other thing is, the rest is just that we continue to ask and we seek and we knock. And invite the Holy Spirit to fill us. And most importantly, we have brothers and sisters around us to pray for us. And that's when God does stuff. Cool. Shall we do this? Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe. Okay. Um, I'm going to make a suggestion, which Darren will probably veto. Um, I, I would. I suggest that um, we get rid of the chairs. Yeah. Chairs aren't from God, are they? Wait, for everyone? <laughs> no. I think it'd be quite good to get rid of the chairs, put them to one side, so that we could all sort of stand. All, um, all of the chairs. Well, Seriously. Do you want every other one? Can, can we push them back or make? Yeah, no, I don't mind. I'm not fussy about the precise means. It's just that I thought. Um, <laughs> okay. Just... Before you go into the spiritual task of moving chairs, can we just make sure that they all get put back because they have to be set up for tomorrow for another do, event? Do we have Do we have people that might be happy to put some chairs back if we move them away? 
You better stay. I'm telling you right now. All right. Go for it, John. I think it'd be quite good to just generally move them away so that we can so that we can all come and stand together no wait wait oh no wait 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 wait, wait. Ooh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, that, that would be one thing I suggest the second thing is I think we should have a brief break so if people want to use the restrooms they can and uh, you know it may be that this is too much for some people and if it is it's fine you, you don't have to stay um, let's just get rid of the chairs though or move them around a bit create a bit of space and then we'll come back together in about five minutes or so thank you for listening to the Garden Church podcast for more information about the Garden Church visit thegardenlb.org